From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tiberi. Do you feel shame or guilt around money or your spending habits? Well, if so, you're far from alone. Later this hour, Leonita and I speak with a financial therapist about how to manage the emotions of money. And we delve into a phrase that explains a lot about how many of us approach money. Money, we often talk about savings accounts, stocks, and investments, but there's a whole other field of research about the emotions we have around money. There's even a term for it, money trauma. And how different events and circumstances of our life is really what determines our relationship with money, money mindset that we carry and we pass down to our kids. Before we get to the psychology of money and how financial decisions impact families and couples, let's first do a 101 on personal spending. Budgeting. What percentage of your monthly take-home pay goes toward housing? How much of it do you save? Do you know how much on average you spend to eat and drink? If you don't know, how come? If you don't have a budget, what's the reason? And if you do, Have you had to make any significant adjustments in the face of market factors, thinking inflation, housing costs, car payments, and groceries among the leading line items? Stacey Walker is Chief Lending Officer at the State Employees Credit Union, and she joins us here on Due South. Stacey, welcome. Thank you for having me today. Do you have a personal budget? Do you follow it? And if so, how often do you review it? Uh, Wow, yes, I do have a personal budget. I think that that is very important for everyone to have a personal budget. So I look at what I bring home every month, um, and that is my take-home pay. So that's after um, we've paid out our state and federal taxes, not looking at taking your gross, taking what you're bringing home. And I immediately set aside money for retirement. I think that is very important because, as you said, is looking at your savings throughout your whole life cycle. So starting as a kid Going through teenage years when you might have your first job and going forward, got to plan for retirement. Um, No one wants to keep working forever. We all want to enjoy some life after uh, working. So I do. I follow a budget every month. I look at making sure that I can pay my main bills, which is always your mortgage payment. Um, If you have a car payment, making sure some credit cards are paid if um, I've used those for a month. But then there's also the day-to-day living expenses. That is your gas for your car. That is going to the grocery store. That's hitting up your essential needs at Target or Walmart, things of that sort. Um, And so then I look and then I also make sure I put a separate amount in savings every month. There is a rainy day fund. Um, You know, you need new tires for your car. You need some housing repairs. You need to make sure that you've got that money set aside for those things, as well as making plans for those Fun events, too. Planning for family vacation, things of that sort. So it is, I do set aside for that. I would say I probably look at it once a year for myself. Okay. Um, And typically, I do that right around tax season. Tax season, I think, is a really good time to take a look at it on an annual review of have you made a goal at the beginning of the year? Was your goal to save X amount of money because you're saving for um, a new car? Mm -hmm. You're saving for a big trip. You're saving to do maybe a renovation in your house. And has that goal been met? And I think tax time is the perfect time to see where you are along the way. So I do follow it and I do monitor it. Quick follow-up. If you have a sense, Mm -hmm. how big is your rainy day fund? Not gross dollars, but how many months could it cover? Um, Typically, a good rule of thumb is to have three to six months worth of your monthly income in your rainy day fund. 
Today, you're a lending officer. We'll talk about that shortly. Prior to this role, you worked at a state employee's credit union branch, helping members with budgeting and personal finance. And I'm curious, what are the very first things you would ask someone when sitting down to talk budget? Um, Typically, when I was speaking with our members to talk budget is they were coming in wanting to talk about can they afford either their first time home purchase or can they afford their next home purchase, that they have outgrown their starter home. They've gone from being a family of one to a family of two, three or four and looking to make that next change on that. So it is looking at let's sit down, let's look at your gross income and let's look at what scheduled monthly payments do you have every month? Are you saving for those rainy day funds? And then let's talk about what you feel is comfortable in a payment of what you're looking for. Sometimes it is, for various reasons, could be potentially a little overextended on utilization of some credit cards or something. So maybe that's the first step of instead of having five or six credit cards that are carrying a couple of thousand dollars on each, let's take a step back. Why do you have each one of these credit cards? Let's maybe consolidate that into one payment. Let's set a target goal for paying that off and using some of that extra money that you were paying between each of those to set aside for savings. For, for better or worse, I might let a little bit of my my personal beliefs, philosophy, just practices creep in here. Five or six credit cards seems not like a great idea to me. I have two. Make a case for more than three. Is there a case to be made to have four, five, six, or more credit cards? Personally, I would say no. Okay. There, There is not. I think having a good um, two is good. You know, lots of times you'll find um, stores that will say, you open your credit card, save 10% today. And maybe sometimes that's great if you're buying the brand new washer and dryer and a refrigerator. Like that's a heavy expense. Saving 10% would probably be good in that realm, but having multiples, no, it is not. I think you used the word comfortable before, and I think that is important as we think about budgeting and, oh, going to take on this mortgage, going to try to cobble together the down payment. And then what is that monthly payment? That, of course, is the really important number as we think about what it's going to look like for the next potentially 30 years or until you sell the home or until you refinance the home. Uh, but specific to this piece of it, debt to income ratio is a is a metric that y'all use on mm-hmm. occasion. Tell us what a, a good, healthy debt to income range is okay. as you think about this budgeting. Yeah. Okay. And I wouldn't say it's just us. That's what every institution right, right. uses. When I say you, yeah. fina- finance. financial okay. folks use debt-to-income ratio yeah. as a way to kind of set up the parameters of how much you can afford when it comes to a, a home or a car. Correct. So go yeah. next level there for me. Yeah. So um, in regards to a mortgage payment, typically what um, is a what is typically used for a good level set of knowing is this housing payment affordable is no more than 30% of your um, income every month. So you look at what your income is, you look at that monthly payment, if it's no more than 30%, that is typically considered a comfortable housing payment for you because that still leaves some additional funds that you are bringing home every month to cover the additional day-to-day living expenses, to cover other expenses that you have. For a total debt-to-income ratio, which means everything you're paying out that is reported to the credit bureau, So that is your housing payment. That is your car payment. That could be some revolving student loan payments, a personal loan payment, some credit cards. That should be no more than 43% of your take-home pay. When you're looking at debt-to-income ratio, though, things that are not included in that is looking at what you pay for your cell phone bill every month, your cable bill. Um, If you have monthly payments for um, a children's soccer team Mm -hmm. or a dance team or something like that, that's not included in that. 
And part of that is because that is considered um, extra residual income that we're trying to make sure that you have to cover those additional monthly expenses. We'll get to housing in a bit, but I would be remiss if I didn't just note soaring costs of home ownership as well as renting and the unfortunate reality for a growing number of people across the last decade that they're spending more than 30 some more than 40 some more than 50% to live in a specific place, which is very challenging and limiting in other ways. Um, do you have, I mean, I've heard of the 50-30-20 rule. I've heard of different budgeting rules of X should go here, Y over here, Z toward savings. Do you have any kind of proportional rules or guidelines that you would offer to members when you used to meet with them? Um, typically, no. And the reason why is because it's important to look at what you are paying out, what your goals are, and that you are saving. But each situation is different. Each um, income um, drives different conversations. Family um, drives different conversations. Are you a family of one? Are you a family of five? Yeah. So I would say I never had any set thing. Typically, it was um, at least try to save 10% of your take-home pay every month okay. was always a good rule of thumb. Mm -hmm. But outside of that, I would not say there was the set 50, 40, 30, okay. 20. I think it's unique to each individual. Sure. And a lot of the factors that we're, we're getting into here. Uh, we're chatting with Stacey Walker, Chief Lending Officer at the State Employees Credit Union here on Due South. I want to acknowledge that there is something of a disconnect, right? Like we can have a really robust conversation about budgets. You can have the most meticulous budget in the world. You can follow it and be a super saver. And the reality is if you're earning $50,000 a year, raising a family, taking care of a parent uh, and or other challenges, financial uh, obligations, there are going to be financial limitations. Maybe dovetailing into my next question, what were some of the biggest problems that people you worked with at CQ faced when it came to creating sustainable budgets? I think sometimes it is folks look at what their take home is. Let's say it's $5,000 a month. Folks will spend up to $5,000 mm. a month. I think that was probably one of the biggest things is not always setting aside for, I don't want to say the rainy day fund, but life happens for all of us. Different expenses happen, different challenges happen, different life events happen. And I think sometimes that was a struggle of, I, do, I can't save that money this month, but I'll double down next month. And then something happens next month where you can't. So I think that was probably one of the biggest challenges on that. Uh, I'm wondering if you have a thought as to when children should be introduced to budgets for the first time and and take it away, if you will. Yeah, yeah Absolutely. Um, I think realistically, I think you can almost start as young as age five. And lots of times that's because the parents, the grandparents, the aunts, the uncles, the godparents are providing. Here's $20 and showing like, let's save a little bit of 20. Is there a certain toy that you absolutely want? And let's try to save towards that goal. Thanks to Stacy Walker, Chief Lending Officer at the State Employees Credit Union. Ahead, how financial experiences from our formative years can impact our adult financial lives. Leonita Inge joins me for some revealing conversations with mental health professionals who have an ear and an eye toward finance. That's coming up here on Due South on WUNC. Welcome back. I'm Jeff Tabiri. And I'm Leonita Inge, and this is Due South on WUNC. 
Money. I feel like it's on my mind often. Uh, Leonita, what about you? You think about money a lot? Too much. Like even, every day? Even when you get a, what do you mean every day? Every hour? I think everybody thinks about it every day. You know, Endless, right? you think you're going to get ahead and you say, oh, I'm going to go visit my sick aunt. But no, I got to go visit my kid in New York. I can't do both. And so when you can't do what you want to do and what you need to do, like visit a sick aunt, then that's when the stress really starts right. to, you know, you're show its face. About, oh, that roof probably needs a little fixing. No, get a bucket. Get that, a bucket. Ooh, a bucket. Okay. What about the car? And the car, like what about the washing machine? Washing machine. Clean clothes. Like Dead. Need to be looking sharp. Uh, and money is stressful, Yes, right? it's stressful. Well, it's money. And some of that stress is unavoidable. But there are also deep-seated ways many of us look at and relate to money that may be making it more of an emotional drain. And so you and I, Jeff, are going to explore some of our feelings around finances. Okay. And I want to welcome Raleigh-based financial therapist, Jillian Knight. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here, Jillian. Let's start with the basic question. What is financial therapy? Yes, that is a great question. So the general definition that you'll get is a type of therapy focused on improving your thoughts, feelings, beliefs, and behaviors around money. There is a growing field of financial therapy that is um, sort of a, a group of therapists and a group of financial planners um, came together and realized that they could really benefit each other because the Financial planners didn't really know how to handle when clients were emotional about money. They just sort of wanted to present the plan and didn't understand why people might not follow through with all the steps. Um, and therapists, we are not taught in grad school how to talk about money, what to, um, how to do our own work, or how to work with our clients around it. And so it is, depending on who you ask, I practice financial therapy as a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, so I have a practice that's under my license. So mine is very much therapy in the traditional sense, but with a focus on your relationship with money, whereas there are other um, financial therapists in other parts of the country that may be practicing it a little bit different depending on their home discipline. So this is really a growing field, a developing field. And I know you've not always been a financial therapist, as you said, in your career. You were more of a, I don't know, a typical therapist for many years. But it almost makes sense to me that family and marriage and life therapy is merged with financial therapy. Yes, absolutely. So I had been a licensed marriage and family therapist, uh, what you would consider a traditional mental health therapist for many years. And I sort of kept that separate from anything having to do with money. I grew up um, in Florida. I grew up lower middle class, I would say. Okay. We had food on the table. We had the things we needed and some of the things we wanted, but not as much as some of my friends did. So I didn't grow up particularly wealthy. And I came here to go to NC State, went out of out of state to do that, took on all the student loans they would give me, partially understanding how student loans worked. But honestly, when you're 17 and you just want to go to the school you want to go to and you didn't come from a family that had a ton of financial education, uh, you just sign the papers and you go and you take on the loans. And then I did that again for grad school. I went to Virginia Tech to Northern Virginia to become a therapist to make not a lot of money initially as a therapist, mm -hmm. um, and eventually um, got together with my husband who um, went to law school, and he didn't grow up with much money either, which means combined, we found ourselves in a lot of student loan debt 
and when we got married, realized just how much that was. And so my own sort of personal finance journey from that point um, until a couple years ago really is what sort of got me down this path to being a financial therapist. If you would uh, give us that figure, just how much debt were you and your husband in? $364,000. And we were making ninety five dollars combined. Okay. So $364,000. This is akin to a mortgage on almost a half a million dollar house. You buy a half a million dollar house, you put 20% down. And I mean, this is, this is a lot of debt. You were into, at this time, I understand the very popular uh, Dave Ramsey. Uh, for those who don't know listeners, he's a very popular author and radio host who uh, offers advice on a call-in show about personal finance. Uh, tell me about your engagement with Dave Ramsey and how that helped you or didn't help you get through some of this this massive debt. Sure. So my husband and I, this was 2016. We had just gotten married. We saw this debt. We were like, okay, we have this book by this guy. He's older. He could be our uncle. He seems to know a lot about money when we don't. And he has this plan that people are following and paying off thousands and thousands of debt. Um, and that's what we thought we needed. And maybe that I have feelings. I have lots of feelings. Um, let's so have, let's do therapy. Let them out. <laughs> Tell us what you're feeling. I've worked through a lot of this. Um, but, but, but I, I want to call a brief time out here. Yeah, sure. Are, what are these? Is it shame? Is it guilt? Is it frustration? Is it anger that you didn't have more? What are the feelings? Because I don't know. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I think it was that we clung to this one way of doing things and stuck with it for way too long. So the plan is very restrictive and it's that way for a reason. It it worked, like worked, and I'm making air quotes that you can't see, um, because we did get on a budget. We did follow the steps. Um, we did start to pay off some debt. Um, we did put aside an emergency fund, a very small one, and we stuck with that for probably two and a half to three years. But that's like no vacations, no going out to eat. All you're focused on is making more money and paying off more debt. And it was very, um, it was sort of depressing because there was no like spending on anything joyful ever. And I can understand sort of doing that for the short term, like very short term. But given our situation and how much debt we had, um, this was going to take years it also made it so that um, it was impacting our relationships. So like we would stop going out with friends. So then friends weren't inviting us out anymore. And then it was sort of just the two of us sort of in isolation, just like trying to stick to this plan with this belief that like we would be happy once our debt was paid off. And that's sort of what we were living for. Jillian Knight is with us here on Do South. She's a financial therapist and is talking about her financial journey. So it sounds like you and your husband uh, perhaps traded um, some misery and uh, just lousy feelings in order to achieve this debt-free lifestyle. Did you get the 364 paid off? And if so, how quickly? So we have not paid off our student loans yet. Um, we paid down a significant amount. So over the course of those couple of years, First couple of years, my husband, um, he's an attorney, so he started out at a smaller firm. He moved to a bigger firm, got an opportunity to increase his income. We didn't change our lifestyle and sort of just kept throwing, like, large sums of money at our student loans. So we paid them down. We're somewhere around 
1.30 at this point. But we had a child during that time. Um, and kids are expensive. Um, yeah. And priorities change, right? So we were so set on doing it that way. But um, things like... Uh, so Dave Ramsey has a lot of values that don't align with ours. And in his radio show, if you ever listen to him, he will let you know what those values are. Um, and his approach is very shaming. It's very like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, individualistic. Like if you don't have enough money, it's your own fault. Not taking into consideration like any other systemic factors that Privilege may have inheritance and yeah I thank mean, you some of the big things that influence everybody in different ways are like, like many people i know would say these are first world problems mm -hmm. you know you <laughs> right. should be able to take care of it because you know you know you have food to eat and probably own a house uh, mm -hmm. yeah let me pivot to your approach right like i don't respectfully like dave ramsey's dave ramsey i want to set him over to the side if i were to walk into your office today and say, my wife and I have $364,000 of debt and we're making $95,000 a year. I think that was the framing that you had uh, for you and your husband eight years ago. What is what is your approach? So we, t we tend to think about money in a very intellectual way. We've sort of been taught like you could be good and bad with money because it's all about math and it's all about how much money you're making. But really there's 80% of our financial decisions are emotional. So what I do is I really focus on what are your feelings about money? What does money represent for you? What are the values that you have around money? Where did you learn that? We go into like, I'm a, I'm a marriage and family therapist, so you know I'm going to be talking about their family and where they learned some of the things that they learned about money. And that's where a lot of us learn our my habits mother. about money. Yeah. <laughs> Me and my sister. Oh, my goodness. We laugh every day. We're in our 50s, and we're like, man, that's Sandra Jean. And we have to shake ourselves. Remember. Sandra Jean never paid any bills. Leonard Inge paid those bills, yeah. you know. So the way she spent money, she could. And we have learned, you know, in this generation, we can't do it that way. So I guess we gave ourselves therapy. We we knew what the problem was. Well, uh, if you would roll with that a little bit, Jillian Knight here with us on Do South. I'm curious, you have a three-year-old daughter to the extent you've thought about this when she is couple years down the road, a few years down the road, how do you want to empower her as it pertains to thinking about money, having confidence and agency as it pertains to money um, in her life? Yeah. So she actually having her, uh, I think, really was the catalyst for some of my decision to even become a financial therapist and go down this path and speak out about some of these things that people don't always think about. And that is because I want her to, I want to have these conversations about money around her because my parents didn't. Um, but that's also probably because their parents didn't for them. And I want her to grow up with the belief that she can take care of herself if she wants to. And also that it's okay to like manage money with a partner as well. Have you seen a growing number of people call on you since the pandemic? Oh, yeah. And um, I wonder what are some of their main financial stressors now? And even, you know, if it's at the point where if they're married, if it's been leading to separation and divorce. I've read several times over the years that the three biggest factors in couples getting divorced are issues over sex, issues over in-laws, and issues over money. Uh, when you see uh, 
couples come in for financial therapy, what are some of the most common things that you're navigating? Uh, is it is it just the inequity? Is it um, a lack? What what is it? Yeah. So it's interesting because what we say in financial therapy is like it's not about the money. <laughs> so like it is about money, right? Because that's what is bringing you in. But it's really about some kind of disconnect between the partners um, in terms of not getting your needs met in the relationship. And that might be showing up in your relationship with money. You might be having a really hard time. You might feel disconnected and have a hard time talking about money because one of you feels like the other one's trying to control them with money or like there's a lot of stories we tell ourselves in couple relationships. So it's really just it's it's more so about unpacking what that's really about. Sometimes it's it it just really depends on the couple. That's what I want to know. What's yeah. the most surprising couple dynamic you've encountered and how did you help them? Mm, that's a good question. So I can't share too many details, but a lot of times I I think that couples can get really stuck in the way that they've always done things, especially if they've been doing them for 20 plus years, 25 plus years. So I have a couple who they, um, it, a, a big part of it is, um, has just been even creating the space for them to feel like they can have a conversation about money without one partner in particular getting overwhelmed and shutting down. Um, and they, they weren't able to do that. And so to start to even be able to talk about money and then even look at numbers, that case in particular has been one that I, like they have moved forward pretty quickly. And a lot of it has been outside of our sessions, but being able to have that space to even start to address like where some of this comes from. Because a lot of times what I see is, especially for people who tend to be more what we would call money avoidant. So they don't look at their bank account or they don't want to be participating too much in like actually being active, like they're more reactive with their finances, is that the more you avoid it, the more anxious you feel. And so because you're anxious about it, you avoid it more. And so if it's really just about like having empathy, which is not what I experienced early on in my experience, having that empathy instead of shame because people have so much shame around money, just creates that safety for people to say, like, this is what it's really about and to start, like, moving towards what they really want. Are you a proponent of joint bank accounts or separate bank accounts? Both. Couples? Combination. Both. And you have both, if you don't mind me asking? Hmm? Do you have both? I'm a fan of combinations. Yeah. We haven't separated ours out at all. We probably will at some point. But I'm a fan of, like, guilt-free spending in your own account that isn't, like, you're not looking at every single purchase that's, like, under a certain amount. But... I'm also all for whatever is going to work best for both of you as a couple and doesn't – there's no one right way is my no, my big thing. You're right. That that <clears throat> that sounds like um a lot of privilege there too, another first world problem when you don't have to look at what you're spending. And, right, that that yeah. forces me out for the record. Yeah, that's, that's pretty tough. I look every all. day. Even yeah. though I'm the only one. Yeah, yeah. I, I look every day because yeah. I just want to know what I can do. Mm -hmm. And I love looking at how – I misspent. Like, oh, look. That's why I look at it every you day. You love looking at that. Yeah. I say, why did I go out to eat? I, did, I didn't have to go out to eat, you know, yesterday. Or I didn't have to 
purchase that mm-hmm. blouse, and I love looking to see what I should not have done. And I say, I'm mm-hmm. not doing that next month. I, you know, I da 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 da. So maybe I'm just weird. Do you, do you plan in advance? See, like, that's probably what I don't do. I, I try. I think in my head plan, but I mean, the people at my credit union laugh at me because I still go in there and get a ledger. Because I like to compare my personal ledger with what's online mm-hmm. <laughs> to see to if, make sure it, to it make syncs sure up. it's right. Oh, I love that. It's mm-hmm. crazy. But, yeah, um, but also like maybe you don't trust that. I guess I don't system. trust. I don't. I trust me. Yeah. So I. Um, <laughs> this is kind of a big, broad question here, but we. So all right, like this is a financial. It's a journey, right? Like your financial experience, and I'm interested if if you're alluding to this a little bit, like you were raised very differently than you operate now as it pertains to money. I imagine you have a lot of clients like that. How do you help them kind of formulate that bridge or. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Something that we don't talk about is, and there's a lot of privilege in saying this. So I'm going to own my privilege there. The, the experience of going from not coming from much to then like having a, an income that's more than your parents had and more than most people in your family have is something that when you're growing up and you don't have a lot of money, you think, okay, well, like my family's going to be happy for me because of that. And it's going to lead to like all these great opportunities to do good things in the world. And then when that happens, there's actually like some guilt associated with it that you might not have anticipated. And so when it comes to like, I definitely think that this happens a lot for like immigrant children who start to make more money than like well more than than their families ever did. Um, just navigating that and then also families where there's an expectation and a desire to provide for the rest of your family and different family members, that's different from person to person, right? And so what I've learned is that no matter how much money you have, whether you have a lot or you have a little, you still have issues around money. And that a lot of people think like once, like I will say like once you have a certain amount of money, like yes, like you need money to not feel anxious about being able to like provide roof and food and basics. And then also once you get like, there's no, for some people, there's like also the issue of never enough, which is like a whole other, but but the majority of of my clients aren't like that. But doesn't, I I actually, I want to push back there and you can tell me why I'm wrong, but I feel like that's the case with a lot of people. This is a keeping up with the Joneses, right? Like now you have enough money for your your needs, but now there's your, your wants. There's always a nicer car. There's always a bigger house. There's always a more extravagant vacation or more fancy and expensive clothing and handbags. And there, there, there's always a way to rationalize earning more to spend more. And I feel like that's just a perpetual cycle in capitalism, not for everybody, but for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say capitalism and consumerism. I mean, if you aren't aware that that is what's happening, um, you can get stuck in what's called lifestyle inflation, too, of Mm -hmm. like the more you earn, the more you spend. And then you're around more people who are spending more and then you need to spend to feel. Yeah, that's a whole that's a whole other issue. Well, we can talk about money. Forever. <laughs> so I, I want, certainly could. Well, thank you, Jillian Knight, financial therapist, with her financial therapy in Raleigh. I think I learned a lot, Jeff. I did. Yeah. This was this was wonderful. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm Leonita Inge. And I'm Jeff Tiberi. More on how finances can impact our relationships and identifying financial trauma. That's coming up in a moment on Due South on WUNC.
Welcome back. It's Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. I'm Leonita Inge, and we're going to continue talking about couples and finances and emotions, and we're also going to explore financial trauma. Here with us to help us better understand financial trauma is Dr. Tracy Williams. She's an Atlanta-based, board-certified psychologist and certified financial therapist. Welcome to Due South, Dr. Williams. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, I saw on your website that you're okay with being called Dr. Tracy, so I just want to confirm before we get going. That's okay? (laughs) Yes, that's fine. Okay. (laughs) Well, Dr. Tracy, I know you have a lot of experience with couples and money, and you recommend money dates. Please explain that. So a money date is where you and your partner get together to discuss money-related topics. It's a time where you set aside and hopefully you have these on a regular basis so that you can take a look at where things are at right now and set goals for your future. That could be short-term goals, like maybe you have a bill that needs to be paid off or you're making plans to pay off debt, or it could be long-term goals like planning for a major family vacation next year. All right. That, but, but, I want to know I, she's got on some money right. dates. <laughs> How did you come up with <laughs> and, well, and I want to push back a little bit. Are these just meetings we're calling dates? Or is that like, do you get dressed up? Is it does not sound like a is fun a date It doesn't sound fun no, at all. No, no, no. Can no. you make this a fun date? Or does this like, you can, it, yeah, go ahead, please. You can absolutely make it a fun date. It can be whatever you want it to be. The point is that most couples are not being intentional with what they do with their money in their relationship. And if you establish a day and a time where you regularly check in, that will be in your best interest. So that could look like it's Saturday morning, we're making pancakes and talking about the budget over pancakes in our pajamas. Or you could get dressed up. You can get dressed up and light candles on a Friday night and be like, okay, let's take a look at all of the costs for this trip that we're going on next year and make plans for saving. Jeff, I don't like that scent of candle. So maybe a- <laughs> And I don't, I don't like blueberries in my pancakes. <laughs> maybe we'll go, I'm such a contrary may, person. Maybe we'll go waffles, <laughs> flowers. This is serious. We're this, not going to laugh is, anymore. All right, no more, no more. Uh, so these, these kind of rules, these uh, guidelines, what about non-traditional partnerships, folks who aren't married, whether they're cohabitating or co-parenting, maybe a family business, same kind of approach, or are there different guidelines there? What most people don't realize is that whatever their relationship is, they have a connection to money in some way, shape, or form. If you are sharing groceries or sharing childcare or sharing a home, there is money involved. And so having conversations is important no matter what your relationship looks like. I want to get to financial trauma here in a moment, but before we do that, just briefly, because it's a big topic. What are your offerings as it pertains to inheritances? And when Mm. one couple or or somebody within a couple comes from a lot more money or, you know, perhaps somebody passes away and they inherit uh, a lot of money, potentially life-changing sums of money. 
Yeah, that can be an emotionally complex experience. Some people experience guilt or shame after inheriting money. Uh, some people have a lot of anxiety because they may not be used to managing that amount of money. Uh, there may be anger. There is obviously sometimes grief. And there can be animosity between partners if one is receiving money and the other is not used to that experience. So it can get emotionally complicated. I think one thing that can be really helpful is working with financial providers who have experience in managing inheritances so that you can navigate those complicated conversations and emotions. Well, we're here with Dr. Tracy Williams, board certified psychologist and certified financial therapist in Atlanta, Georgia. And right now, I guess we'd like to talk about financial trauma. So now, is that what we're moving into when you mention all the things that could probably go wrong with even inheritances? Yeah. So first off, I want to mention, because most people tend not to know what financial therapy is. And us as financial therapists, we exist at the intersection between your financial health and your mental health. Financial therapists help you change how you think about, feel about, and behave with money so that you can have a healthier relationship with money. Financial trauma is the experience of having uh, an event happen in your life that has impacted you financially, a money-related event that has then led to you having a response to money and money-related experiences that is not working out. So what can that look like? That might be that you grew up in abject poverty and you are now trying to navigate the world as a college-educated person who is making more money than your family ever made. There are also instances of people who've experienced fraud or money scams where you then become apprehensive about anything related to money. It can look different for different people, but at the end of the day, what usually happens is there is that apprehension, that anxiety that is produced around money. So you deal with this a lot in your, in your practice, I'm assuming. This is way more common than I think most people realize. The thing about our society is that talking about money is pretty taboo. And so people tend to keep these things to themselves. They don't share this even with their loved ones. And so you may not realize how common this actually is. I, I want to make sure I'm hearing you on it. I mean, it sounds to me the way you're sizing this up, whether you have climbed socioeconomic strata and you live in a different tax bracket, so to speak, than you did as a child, or if you've had a significant experience around not having enough money or a major bill coming in or some kind of notable debt, that can create some trauma as well. So I, I guess I'm thinking this term financial trauma could apply to really a lot of people in different socioeconomic places. But am I thinking Absolutely. about it? Absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah. It doesn't matter what the dollar amount is. It's the emotional experience. And I think that that ties us together as human beings. If you strip away the the dollar and the material things, at the end of it, you have our emotions and the experiences that we have had. 
One thing to remember is that trauma produces symptoms, and symptoms could be things like an upset stomach, you feel lightheaded, you have heart palpitations when you're talking about money or have to face anything money-related, you can have sleeplessness, you can be withdrawing from others, you can have uh, intimate partner issues. So we help people recognize what these symptoms are and how they're connected to the financial experience that they had. We help them to manage these emotions so that they can then process what they went through and then be able to move forward to heal financially and get their money in order. Can you give us an example or two? Of, yeah, yeah, so... Sure. So for instance, uh, a young man, he went to college, he got um, athletic scholarships, and his upbringing, he grew up without money. His uh, parents had domestic violence within their relationship. And uh, after he graduated, he went professional in his athletic career. And even though he was making a large amount of money and all around him, people were spending large amounts of money, he was having extreme guilt uh, around the fact that his family did not have, around the fact that they were asking him for money, um, and also just in general trying to figure out this new identity that he had. And it was causing him significant stress. So that is an example of experiencing financial trauma going from not having a lot and then to having a lot and it impacting you emotionally. And it can also go in the opposite direction as well. If you've been financially stable and then you have a significant loss, that can also impact you financially. Mm -hmm. You know, I spoke with personal finance columnist Michelle Singletary with the Washington Post. You're familiar with her and um, good friends. And, and while it was so revealed so revealing. And I'm thinking about her because she wrote this 10-part series that was called Sincerely Michelle about common misconceptions involving race and inequality. And, you know, she loves to write about her big mama, you know, um, her grandmother in those articles. And I think I understand a lot of what she's saying, maybe to be financial trauma, you know, when she says how her grandmother's options to building wealth were, like, limited because of her, like, distrust of institutions. She didn't trust Wall Street or really any financial institution, and the only thing she um, allowed was having a bank account to hold her money. And in that um, column, you know, Michelle is very revealing, and she explains that a lot of how she talks about money and what she does about money um, is because of what she learned from her grandmother. And even this trauma, she thought even about slavery, you know, going back that far of just like not having money, hold on to what you have because somebody may take it. Yes, absolutely. So generational wealth is definitely impacted by what goes on in a society. And for Black people and African Americans, it has been difficult to create generational wealth because of all of the hurdles that have been placed in the way since the beginning of the arrival here in this country. That is just a fact. Um, and it continues to exist to today. 
our experiences growing up in our families shape the ways in which we do things and the beliefs that we have. So for her, witnessing what her grandmother did definitely left a lasting impact on her. And similarly for me too, I grew up on an island. I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, We have a different economy, a different system. And so when I moved here to the United States, I did not know anything about the stock market. I did not know that the 401k was invested in (laughs) stocks. I was very surprised to learn that fact. And so your experiences shape you. Dr. Tracy Williams, board-certified psychologist and certified financial therapist, is with us here on Due South. Dr. Tracy, you are a psychologist, and you're used to handling trauma of different kinds. I'm wondering, how did you make the transition to looking specifically at financial trauma? Yeah, I became interested in money during the pandemic. If you think back, the pandemic was a very interesting time where money was concerned. There were a lot of conversations around money, um, people who were really struggling and people who were becoming greedy and trying to take as much as they could. And in that moment, I realized My background in psychology, it's not just about what we traditionally think of when we think of a psychologist, but also just looking at the way that people behave and the feelings that come up for people. And so that's how I became interested in financial health. Um, It was during the pandemic. You know, I have to bring up something that's sort of personal (laughs) because of your article in Essence magazine by Taylor Crumpton called Forget Quiet Luxury. Black women deserve to live out loud. Mm. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that, about showing your wealth, you know, being loud about it instead of the trend of, you know, quiet luxury and how you're seeing historically, you know, marginalized communities, specifically black women like me, being scrutinized really about the way that um, we spend money. Yeah, historically, the expectation has been that Black people, Black women especially, will make do with what they have. Uh, We have been... Only dress uh, up on Sunday mornings. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And how dare you show up Mm -hmm. in designer clothes. Um, And I wish that these were things that I was making up, but it is documented over... A long period of time. And so now what we are seeing, especially with millennials and Gen Z, there is a shift that is happening where there is an equality and an expectation that, yes, I too deserve to have these things. And so in essence, I was having that conversation around embracing that and what that can look like in a financially responsible way. As a psychologist, do you have a theory or do you believe that's rooted in classism or fear of, oh, uh, you know, black women not having uh, money? uh, (laughs) No. Like, why do you think that the criticism is so heavily levied against black women in this regard? Yeah. 
I mean, it's it's classism, it's racism, it's the patriarchy, it's a combination of all of the things, unfortunately. And I think that now we are seeing a reckoning where people are standing out and saying, no, I am, I'm done with that chapter, let's move on from there. Well, hopefully um, it doesn't interfere with finding a, a partner, <laughs> a couple <laughs> to share all of that with and to um, learn how to live together financially and respectfully and to have a little bit for um, the next generation, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I say definitely enjoy yourself. On social media, you see people taking lots of trips and un unboxing their hauls and all of those things. And then you desire to have those things as well. But if you can do so responsibly, then you will continue to enjoy your money for a long time to come. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Tracy Williams. <laughs> thank you for having me. This was fun. Dr. Tracy Williams, board-certified psychologist and certified financial therapist out of Atlanta, Georgia. You can learn more about her work at Healthy Wealthy Roots. Due South is a production of WUNC and a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Our producers are Stacia Brown, Cole Del Charco, and Rachel McCarthy. Denarius Thomas is our technical director. Aaron Kiever is our executive producer. And our theme music is produced by Quilla. For Leonida Inge, I'm Jeff Tiberi. We'll talk to you again tomorrow at 10.